Thank you very much for downloading the Trap One podcast. This week we're continuing our coverage of Doomsday, this year's multimedia event with hours 11 to 14 of Deadly Assassin Doom's 24-hour mission to find the Doctor and save her life. This segment is the novel Extraction Point, Extraction Point, Extraction Point by M.G. Harris. 14 hours to go and I've still got to find the Doctor. Good thing I'm on this satellite over Earth. A number... That's a good sign, right? I'm Mark and I'm delighted to be joined this week by Jason. Hello, everybody. This is US, this is US Jason, not UK Jason, as you can tell by the accent. <laughs> and Brendan. Hello, dear listeners. It's a very international episode that we've got, uh, we've got this week. So, so far, how much of Doomsday have you guys experienced? Um, just this, just this book. And I did consider, oh, should I read some of the others? But I wanted to see if the book stands up on a piece of, as stands up as a, as a narrative on its own. Um, and I will reserve my judgment on that until we're discussing it more fully. But I will say that the book has left me thinking, okay, I do want to go check out the other stuff now. I have much the same take as Brendan. I made the conscious financial decision not to follow the entirety of the doomsday series as the u.s government is perpetually circling the brink of a shutdown and as my salary is contingent on the government staying open i'm a little hesitant to splurge three or four figures of money on a huge multimedia presentation i have a lot of thoughts about that and about what this project is and how it was marketed and how it was received. I'm sure we'll come to that organically over the rest of the hour. But since I was only ever going to read this one book, like Brendan, I was very curious as to how it holds up as an independent story and whether or not it entices me to eventually track down the rest of the series. And you'll hear my answers over the next 60 <laughs> minutes. <laughs> I've uh, obviously, if anyone's been listening to the podcast, knows I've, I've covered the first uh, ten hours of it uh, with, with various other guests. Uh, but to recap, Doom was on an assassination mission in New Venice. She tried to assassinate somebody there. We know not who. Against the advice of the Doctor, we know not which one. She was hit by some kind of weapon. We know not what that is going to kill her in twenty-four hours. We know not how. Uh, but her job as an assassin for the Lesser Order of Oberon means that she has a Vortex Manipulator that will take her to her next target in time and space, and she hopes each time that the next leap will be the leap to the Doctor. <laughs> that is the story so far. This book, as I mentioned, is written by M.G. Harris, Maria Guadalupe Harris. Is anyone familiar with her work? This is her first Doctor Who work, but Brendan, she's written some... Blake Seven for Big Finish? Yes, that's right. And also has written uh, a couple of trilogies of young adult fiction of her own. Um, so this is sort of continuing a trend we've seen. Um, I'm thinking of books like, I think, uh, The Drostom Curse, uh, where you're, the BBC are getting established novelists outside of the Doctor Who world to write Doctor Who novels, which I think is really interesting because it brings new voices in, new to us as fans, but also hopefully brings the fans of that writer into the world of Doctor Who while giving us new stories. So it's it's an interesting approach, and I, I, 
I've seen it happening more regularly the last few years. I have not, but the first thing that I did was Google her, and this is somebody with a very impressive and unique background for Doctor Who fiction. One of the things that I talked about a few months ago, Mark, when you and me and Ruth were talking about origin stories, the short story anthology, Mm -hmm. is that ever since Chris Chibnall was the showrunner, the book series has made a much more targeted effort to bring in the most diverse group of writers imaginable. So we are getting perspectives and backgrounds that we've literally never seen in Doctor Who fiction before. And Doctor Who is fine when it's just telling silly stories about flatulent aliens. But with M.G. Harris, she's born in Mexico City in the 1960s. She is, I believe, Doctor Who's first Latinx writer. Um, I may be wrong on that, but she's the first one that I can think of. And she moves to London, and she's established a very good career um, in the genre field. But if you look at her Twitter and if you see what her interests are, she's very politically active. She has very, very strong viewpoints. And she brings that to her fiction because when you cut away all the manic silliness that is evident in parts of this novel, this is a very political book and she is exactly the right person to write it. This is not the kind of story that might have been told in previous eras of Doctor Who fiction. So like the the previous four hours which were covered by the Titan comic, this takes the opportunity to to tell an overarching story over the four hours that it covers. So the first story is called 14 Hours, and they're all named like that, 14 Hours, 13 Hours, denoting how many hours are left remaining before whatever is going to kill Doom kills her. Uh, In this one, her target is a guy called Stalgon. By the end of the second chapter, she's been attacked by some people who've been revealed to be androids in the classic android invasion way of their faces falling off and revealing electronics underneath. I think it's a bit of misdirection there because Stalgon sounds a bit like Stigron and it made me think the target was going to be a Kral. Anybody else thinking along those lines? That's exactly what I thought. And I was very confused when he's then referred to as humanoid. (laughs) How awesome is it that we are at a point in the 60-year history of Doctor Who where you can make the alien technology and, in fact, the entire premise of Android Invasion is that this alien race called the Krals, who happen to be the best android makers in the galaxy, are able to build a photorealistic simulation of planet Earth and use it as a staging point for a mock invasion. That's exactly what this story is about, that they are contracted out to build a photorealistic simulation with androids and use it to test a different form of alien invasion from a different alien species. So the Krals are not the antagonists in the story, but their technology is... That is a pretty deep cut, and that's a pretty impressive knowledge of android invasion. If you ask anybody to name their favorite Doctor Who story of all time, and you get a thousand Doctor Who fans in the room, you probably would get somewhere between zero and zero people who list android invasion as their favorite (laughs) of all time. But I love that in the 60th anniversary year, we can get a story that uses accurately the technology from probably Terry Nation's least popular and least famous script and considering that tales from the tardis just came out the other day as we're, as we're talking and that rtd is giving us more and more corners of the doctor who universe and bringing them back isn't it great that 
one of the books that came out in 2023, owes a lot to the Android invasion. It is, and and as as much as much negativity as, as Doomsday and Once and Future have attracted, I think the point of them has been they've been this this romp through the whole uh, universe as as it's now been officially titled. So, in, in both, you know, we're meeting characters, aliens, uh, going to planets that are, you know peppered throughout the the series history, and it's just this this great big fun celebration because uh, there's there's other elements in this book as well that uh, that pop up. Um, obviously, from the ninth Doctor, we get the the Raxacalica for the Rax. <laughs> well, I should have practiced this. The, I want to the... point out that this is the third time we've tried to record this show, and Mark has never been able to get it right. <laughs> we've done the first ten minutes three times, yeah. right up to this point. Yeah. All right, let's go back to the beginning and try it again. Hi, I'm Jason. Welcome to Trap One. <laughs> Hello, dear listeners. <laughs> I'm going to do. I, I think the key is to do it quickly, isn't it? The Raxacarica Fallopatorians yeah. are in this. Yes. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you know, the the novel wears its heart on its sleeve. You've got, and, and I'm holding it up because podcasts are a visual medium, dear listener. Um, <laughs> so you've got Doom, you've got the Second Doctor, you've got the Ninth Doctor, you've got. Two Raxacaric. Now I'm doing it. You got two Raxacaric. Rax- ah, I- Here's the thing, right? The week after Aliens of London went out, I could spell it. Anyway, you've got two Raxacaric. Raxacalico on the cover and Satellite Five. <laughs> you know, it's like, yep, jump in, kids. We're going continuity hunting. Here's the thing. I'm going to hold up my copy of Extraction Point. This is my Kindle. I did not get a physical media copy of this. I got the Kindle version, and the cover is on the Kindle screen the size of a lima bean. I went into this book cold. I didn't realize which doctors were in it. I didn't realize which returning monsters were in it. I didn't know about satellite. I was putting all this together as the book went on. So I highly recommend reading – this book without spoilers. Of course, if you're listening to the episode, everything has already been spoiled for you. So forget what I forget that I said anything, <laughs> but I think the book benefits from not having it all given away on the cover. Yeah. Cause there's some clues early on, isn't there? That it's the Slitheen. Let's just say Slitheen. Actually, it's going to, it's going to be easier. Um, that it's the Slitheen, but yeah, having seen the cover, you can tell that they are the kind of the, um, the, the, the main villain of the piece. And the doctor is you see the ninth doctor is in, in two of the chapters of this, and he already knows about the Slitheen. He's already had the adventures of aliens in London, World War Three. So where where is this for the ninth doctor, and where is Rose? Do we think she's studying graphology? <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's a good that's a good question. Now he's wearing his purple jumper. Which, um, let's see, I think he wears that in Dalek and maybe the Doctor Dances. So, yeah, maybe at some point between um, the Doctor Dances and Boomtown, this adventure might be set. Uh, there is a clue on the copyright page, which I will hold up. Oh. I will just tell you the editor, and it's always important to know who the editor is. The editor is Steve Cole. Steve Cole, in the year 2005, wrote one of the first three original new series novels, 
which Mark is now holding up, called The Monsters Inside. This is noteworthy because it is the first Doctor Who novel cited on the TV screen. Russell T. Mm. Davies worked a reference to the book into Boomtown, and that adventure is mentioned within the pages of this book, the Slavine pl- prison planet, which is mentioned. Yeah, that was Steve Cole's book. Yeah. So this takes place around the time of Boomtown because it's the same reference. Right. I think that Brilliant. book is also notable for being Rosie's first alien planet, I think I'm right in saying. Yes. Yeah. And as you mentioned editing, there's a very odd bit on page 47 of this book. I don't know if you noticed where when I was reading it, and I had to read this about three times, about the same number of times that I tried to say Raxacaricophallopatorius, <laughs> where uh, Doom, in one corner, stood a metal closet approaching. She practically smacked into a man who suddenly rounded the corner. The monocle tracker had given a zero warning of his approach. It was as though he'd appeared from, well, he'd appeared from what, what appeared to be a dead end just beyond the closer, just beyond the closer. Not sure what that means. The next paragraph starts, a new sound began to reverberate around the launch bay, echoed and pulsed, growing in power and volume. Something was materialising inside the bay. It was a blue box, taller than the average human, and the doctor steps out. So who was the man that she bumped into? He's just disappeared and he's never mentioned again. I think originally she was going to bump into the doctor and then see the TARDIS, but then obviously... Uh, that got changed, but in the editing, both versions remain. <laughs> yeah, I think what happens is, so sort of halfway down you get, she opened drawers randomly, no biscuits. She peered around the bay, sniffing the pastry. In one corner stood a metal closet. I think then the TARDIS is meant to land. Then we put in the bit about approaching. She's, she's not approaching the cabinet, she's approaching the TARDIS. Yeah. And then the Doctor appears. Yeah, I, I remember going with that as well. It's like, oh, that's a mistake. And at some point, I've tried to find the page and I can't. Um, the doctor, I, but I think it's during the last hour, she's referring to the doctor and uses herself. Yes. Now, I don't, and I thought to myself, oh, maybe maybe Doom's encountered the Jodie Whittaker incarnation at some point in, in the whole story. I don't know. Or maybe it's just a slip-up. Well, Doom has encountered what she thought was the 13th Doctor, but turned out to be chameleon masquerading as the 13th Doctor. Oh, wow. I, I did see stills from the game, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, in, a, in a story where uh, K-9 and Chameleon have teamed up to defend a colony of robots. So, yeah, that's um, it's, it's quite a kind of cute idea. So I think the first chapter is very James Bond, isn't it? I felt with all the, the kind of the skiing and the... Uh, cable, it's not cable cut, it's gondola, but kind of um, all those kind of antics are a little bit kind of Moonraker, aren't they? It's it's kind of very action-packed. Yeah, totally. Like, definitely Roger Moore-era James Bond hijinks. I really love how Doom is very annoyed that Manda has come up with his the suggested method of assassination, and Doom's like, oh, yeah, great. I hate clients <laughs> like this. It just... <sighs> Part of the, I think, unfair criticism that this um, sub-series spin-off has come in for is, well, she doesn't look like an assassin. It's like, that probably makes her a very effective assassin, yeah. you know. <laughs> um, and I, w- I was hoping, like, Suze Kemper, who's playing her in 
the uh, the audios. I was hoping, like Suze, that Doom would be a little bit quirky, and she is. But it's not it's not over egged. It's eccentricity, not lunacy, and that sort of James Bondy thing really works because you're getting her in a monologue of how ridiculous this whole situation is. It's great because her, her preferred method of assassination is to befriend somebody and then poison them, whereas <laughs> the client in this one wants her to ski down a ski slope, push them together off a cliff, and then use these kind of futuristic, uh, you know, kind of paraglider type thing to <laughs> to fly to safety, which is two two opposite extremes of uh, of assassination, I imagine. So yeah, you can you can, uh, you can quite see why she's annoyed by that. So she she does successfully complete the mission and she kills Stalgon. Uh, oh yeah, but the the stakes just keep getting higher in this one, don't they? Because as well as this uh, incredibly dangerous assassination, while she's on the ski slope, she realizes an asteroid heading towards this planet that's going to completely destroy it. And then uh, by the end of it, she learns that it's it's a Kral simulation and a ship has has smashed into the asteroid and and destroyed it. So she takes the next mission aboard Satellite 5, which, as you say, is uh, is on the cover and is, is familiar to the Ninth Doctor from The Long Game and Bad Wolf. And her mission here is to kill a ghost, which is, is quite a cool science fiction idea, isn't it? They, they're called ethereals, and this is pay, people who paid to be resurrected after their deaths, kind of based on their social media profile and communications and things. There's a Black Mirror episode yes. uh, with Domino Gleeson that's yes, got yes. a similar kind of concept, isn't it? That and was a much learned... more serious and depressing episode than this book, though. <laughs> yes. <Yeah. laughs> uh, and continuity-wise, we know that this is after the long game because Satellite 5 is now run by Kathika from the long game. It was the journalist that the doctor uh, encouraged to overthrow the, the Jagrafess, and we learned that this is three years later uh, in the lifetime of Satellite 5. And Doom is looking for a ghost who's, uh, it says the ghost will make contact with you. So there's a woman that keeps talking to her, and there's a little boy that keeps talking to her. So there's a bit of misdirection there because you think it's this woman because she keeps disappearing, whereas the kid's just kind of being annoying. Um, but yeah, it, it turns out it is the kid. And we get a lot of, a lot of discussion in the book. More so than in the comics, I think, because because you get more of her in a, in a monologue in the book about the ethics of being an assassin and where she draws the line in assassinations. So, kind of killing children being one of them. Um, but I think it, it, it's kind of interesting because the, the book itself says that assassination is an unfortunate necessity or something like that. Um, well, it doesn't really, it doesn't it kind of isn't Doom saying that as well? It kind of says it in the uh, in in the text, like the uh, like the narrator's saying it. Which it's yeah, I think we t- I talked about this with Bryn when we talked about some of the earlier Doomsday stuff. It's probably quite a challenge to make an assassin your sympathetic character that you're rooting for in these stories. The comics are a lot softer on that, I think, where some of her missions were like to kill the idea of a unicorn so that unicorns wouldn't be hunted to extinction and things like that. Whereas the book is, is a bit harder edged uh, in that way. She does, you know, sort of shoot Stalgon to death and stuff. But, but uh, how did you find that just experience in the book? Did you find somebody who's a hired killer, someone that you can uh, kind of get behind as a main character? Let's preface that. And you may have discussed this in some of your earlier doomsday episodes, Mark, but the toxic, 
negative, bitter fan reaction to the release of this story. And I can't speak as to what's in the hearts of everybody on Twitter. And it's a mistake to take three people on Twitter and say this is the whole of fandom. Maybe mm. they're outliers. They're just outspoken outliers. I have to get the feeling that there's an element of misogyny in the fact that people hated the idea that Suze Kempner was the selling point of this serial. And when she started pushing back comically against some of the worst critics, oh, she's making it worse. It's her fault. I think that if she was playing a hospice nurse, people would still have complained because mm -hmm. it was a woman playing the character. So no matter what role the character was, people would have complained about it first. Second of all, the fact that she interacts with the doctor and the various incarnations of the doctor in this book openly disapprove of what she does and cock an eyebrow when she tries to defend herself, I think the book is addressing that. Yeah, yeah, and I think the Ninth Doctor is the perfect character to do that because, you know, he, at, at the time of creating the character, is the closest to the time war, etc., and sort of, if not has sympathy, has understanding of who Doom is and what she's doing. And, you know, towards the end, when they have a discussion about the ethics of her work, he does actually kind of approve of some of her standpoints of, no, I don't do this and I don't do this and I don't do this. Um, yeah, I, I think, Jason, I very much agree with you that a lot of the bile aimed at this series seems to be because it's a, it's a woman. You know, it's not Absalom Dark. Like, if they'd done this series about Absalom Dark, mm. yeah, there would have been, oh, well, that's fan wank kind of thing, like there was with Time Lord Victorious. But there wouldn't have been this level of anger about it. It's like, mm. why are you angry about something that's totally optional? It's not like you have to buy every piece of Doomsday to understand the 60th anniversary specials. Mm. And indeed, that kind of approach is against the BBC Charter. Uh, they can't release spin-off media that has to be obtained to understand the main program. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's kind of like I can understand people being disinterested and I can understand people saying, I don't want to have to buy all these things to experience the story. I'll wait for it to go on sale or, oh, it's just not for me. Like, I think I've done like two or three Time Lord Victorious things, you know, but I don't hate it. Mm. Um and I certainly didn't hate this. I think this was a really cracking good story that shifts tone in a conscious way. Like we get the James Bond bit, then we get the more metaphysical thing with the ghost. Um, and then the third and fourth are a bit more sort of political thriller. Yeah. Uh, if this is an indication, I want to see more of this range. <laughs> and it's a, it's a four-part Terry Nation story. Parts one, two, three, and four all take place in different locales. But of course, yeah. <laughs> part four relates back to part one, so it, it squares the circle. Yeah. And it's, it's, it's a fun book with a political message. And when a book is just comedy and goofy, it's not the kind of book you want to read over and over again. I don't think this is the best book ever written. And I think there's – because it's the book that's in the middle of the cycle – it's not going to be a classic because it doesn't really have an ending. It has spoilers or it has lead-ins as to what's going to happen next. And we don't know from the end of the book whether or not Doom is going to survive. That being said, it's very enjoyable for what it is. 
You remember, Mark, when I was a guest for one episode of your Time Lord Victorious Trap One Cycle, I went mm-hmm. off on an apoplectic rant about the fact that you needed to buy a stuffed animal as part of the TLV range, and there was a short story printed on the back of the packaging, and you could only get it at certain retailers and retailers in England. Like, how am I supposed to keep up with this series if you have to go to a specific store across the pond and buy a stuffed <laughs> animal that may or may not be in stock and has a pivotal short story on the back of the packaging? At I least this is a full that. novel that you can enjoy on its own terms. This this is a little Eagle Moss figures, um, but obviously Eagle Moss have uh, no longer a kind of a going concern, so that they're not uh, license holders, so they're not they're not part of uh, of this one. Uh, so uh, yeah, that's um, crikey. I, I, I didn't know that. I, I, I maybe I did. Like I, I seem to recall there's like t-shirts that have like a three paragraph short story on them for Time Lord yeah. Victoria. Oh, they toned it down oh, this time, and I think yes. um, you know, like the Titan comics, you can get um, electronic copies of for less than two pounds each. Mm. So yeah, it, it costs like three pounds something to get the, that. Those four hours, hours one and two, are free on the website. You know, some of them came with the Doctor Who magazine. So you know, if you already subscribe to that kind of thing, that's uh, so. I think cost wise, it's, it's it's a lot less than Time Lord Victorious. So these are just the BBC Audio and Big Finish releases that that are the costliest versions uh, are the costliest parts of doomsday but even then i think it's slightly cheaper to get you know the digital uh, versions of it yeah. so yeah a lot cheaper than than, than time of victoria so i think um yeah and, and as to the um you say the misogyny i think suze kempner was, was i think a great choice to play the part anyway because, because i think she's brilliant but also as a stand-up comedian he's well used to dealing with hecklers and uh, and people like that. So she has really given as as good as she's got on Twitter, which has been uh, which has been really good to see. I think. I think in terms of the perception of the series, it, it's kind of a shame. I think maybe if the audio has been released first, so we could have heard her play Doom. Uh, although we've had those little trailers, um, that might have helped. The, you know, if I, kind of reading the book because I've only I've only covered this. I've only got as far as I have covered it on the podcast, so I haven't listened to the audios yet. Uh, but I did wonder if reading the book, having heard her play the part, you know, I'd have kind of heard the voice differently and things like that. So it might have uh, it might have enhanced the experience a little bit. Uh, and I think the Doctor Who magazine comic coming first, right after the first short story, didn't really help it because they had very few pages to cover four hours. So some of the one of the stories is only one page, for example. So I don't think it really drew people in in the way that some of the subsequent chapters did. People complained when the original trailer dropped because the production values did not resemble a Martin Scorsese or James Cameron feature <laughs> film. He's <laughs> wearing a cheap costume and standing in front of bad CGI. So people go, oh, the production values are bad. That's the point. This is a comedic series. This is not Killers of the Flower Moon. This is meant to be somewhat satirical, tongue-in-cheek so i had no problem with that yeah it's like the only the only criticism i saw of that that i agreed with is um someone just said i just wish they'd roughed the costume up a bit because it looks like she's just bought it and i'm like that's a legitimate 
because it's like, oh, the production values aren't great. It's like, well, it's not a visual series. They've like literally made this for Tuppence. And do you know what show this is based on? Yeah. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, imagine if it had been filmed at the um, the bloody Welsh Conference Centre. That's been Silurian <laughs> High Command and platform. It would have been. Oh well, they're they're not spending money on a good location for God's sake. <laughs> what we didn't know when this trailer came out is that RTD was already busy. He was filming new webisodes with a large number of existing cast members back to the 60s and 70s. He was recutting a colorized version of the original seven-part Dalek serial into a 75-minute movie. He was organizing the entirety of the Hooniverse. He was filming two seasons of Shooty Gatwa and bringing back Bonnie Langford and bringing over several Broadway stars like Neil Patrick Harris and uh, Jinx Monsoon and Bonnie Langford again. With all the work that he was doing, it is amazing that RTD was able to conceive this and get it out. So don't complain about the production values. Of all the things that RTD is giving us, this is not the most important or the most high profile. It's just traditional storytelling with continuity references. It is not the only Doctor Who of 2024. Let's enjoy it for what it is. We have, there's good reasons for this not being filmed at Pinewood. Mm. Yeah, it's a nice thing to have in, in addition to all the other fantastic treats, uh, like, as you say, in the anniversary. Yeah. yeah, and, you know, I think back to when I in, – in the early 90s, I was a kid. I could see the new adventures and the mystic adventures on shelves. I bought one or two of them. I didn't – I didn't like them as a kid. They were too slow for me because, of course, you know, they, they have a lot of world building and I appreciate them now. Um, I couldn't afford to buy them every month, but I was just so excited to see them on the bookshelf every time I walked in. And I would read the blurbs and think about the stories, but know that, oh, well, I can't buy those. That's okay. You know? Um, and even reading them now i kind of go oh that's a really questionable thing to put in doctor who but as as you as you say jason it's not the only doctor who that's happening and even at the time you had the comic strip in in dwim that was a bit more traditional and less hard-nosed um and then getting towards the end of the decade you had big finish which actually brought the original cast back um so it's kind of funny that even yeah, sort of for many for many reasons, we have had like three years with much less Doctor Who on television. But even so, like the spin-off media has been keeping going and had different tones and had sales and, and what have you. It's like, yep, I get that having spin-off media that costs money is gonna be a barrier to a lot of people, but I don't think that's a reason some people seem to argue that's a reason not to have it. And I'm kind of like, no, it's not a reason not to have it, but it, yeah, it is a concern and it is, that's why it's so important. We still have the TV show, but bear in mind, there is a large amount of fans who didn't have the, even the TV show for 16 years. <laughs> and I forgot to mention one more Broadway star that RTD was splurging the budget on Jonathan Groff. So <sighs> there's good reasons for this not being the most high, high profile corner of the Hooniverse which is literally what it's called now. But also, if we're talking about, oh, we can't root for Doom because he's an assassin, 
James Bond is an assassin. That's literally what he does. That's why he has a double O number. Kids love James. Nobody says, you can't watch James Bond because he's an assassin. Come on. And bloody River Song. Yeah. River Song, self-described assassin and psychopath. And we're all like, yes, work. And quite right, too. Um <laughs> <laughs> As you were saying earlier, Jason, the book does address that this is a morally grey character. It it doesn't shy away from that. The character speaks for herself about why she does what she does. The Doctor reacts to that. And it's never never pious from either side. Mm -hmm. It's never this absolute thing of good and evil. It's this recognition of this is a character who exists in the Doctor Who universe. How do we make that character work? in the Doctor Who universe. And I think the lesser order of Oberon is a genius idea Mm. because Revelation of the Daleks, very well regarded. Um, Orsini, a Knight of the Grand Order, played by William Gaunt, like a classic British TV actor. So we as fans have that already. And having loved Lower Decks over the last few years, that's how I sort of imagine the the lesser order of Oberon. They get the less important assassination. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And uh, in a way, that's kind of why I root for her character already, because she's part of the lesser order of Oberon rather than the greater order of Oberon. So it's like, no, I want to see you succeed. I want to see you kill that guy. (laughs) And the the lesser order was introduced in Time Lord Victorious. That's... That's ah, the, uh, that's kind right. of the, to the previous event. Brian the Ood, that's who he worked for um, as, as an assassin. I see, and I believe is he's going to turn up in in one of the audios, which I've uh, which I've yet to listen to. Oh yeah, I think he's on. I think he's on the cover of the Big Finish one, or is it the BBC one? I'm not sure. Yeah, so it's uh, yeah, it's a cool little kind of uh, crossover with the previous uh, the previous Time Lord Victorious because he was kind of the breakout star really of, of Time Lord Victorious. He was a, just a fantastic character, mm. and I think turned up in one of the escape rooms or, or you know the kind of uh, events that you could go to as well. I think James was telling us about that uh, on the podcast at the time. So we we also get the second Doctor turning up in the final chapter of this book, and. It's season six B Doctor, which is, yes, it, that is such a fan theory, isn't it? From the nineties, which has completely taken root. So big finish now. We've got a season six B series. I think the books have really taken it on board. I think, in fact, it was Terence Dick's final story that was in that Target storybook was a season six B kind of a it was a, a kind of spin on that. And that was a that was a dark story mm. for the last thing he ever wrote. I that was a. Really, really highly recommend that. Um, so he also did a couple of past Doctor Adventure novels in the early 2000s covering the same ground. The second Doctor as an agent of the Time Lords in between War Games and Spearhead from Space. You could actually read this too as taking place in the same universe as the Timeless Children, because he's working for the agency. You know, it's called Division and Timeless Children, but it's, it's the same concept. Mm-hmm. The Doctor is working involuntarily for this dark division of the Time Lords doing terrible things. And M.G. Harris is born in August 1966. So literally, when she moved to England as a baby, Patrick Trout would have been the Doctor on TV. 
I don't know much about her personally, but you could argue that Patrick Troughton is maybe her doctor from the earliest part of her childhood. So she's and she writes him very, very well, by the way. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was actually slightly disappointed he's not in it more because she does she does capture not only his sort of silliness and eccentricity, but the melancholy as well. And I think a lot of writers get the silly, really, the silliness of the character, but some of them miss the melancholy side of of the second Doctor. And I think it's, you know, the same reason that some people just write the first Doctor as grumpy and forget the humorous side. But yes, I, th- I think there, yeah, there are moments where she just describes the Doctor as looking at Doom, and you you can just see Patrick Crown's big sad eyes of oh actually I quite liked you until you said that, um, yeah it's kind of like my my only disappointment with the second Doctor in this is he's not in it more and there's not a scene with him and the ninth Doctor because they're my two favourites. I wanted you know they and they're both a bit they're both a bit sort of rough around the edges and I kind of wanted that that beat up. <laughs> The cover almost promises that as well, doesn't it? If, if you were to look at the cover and you, you see Doom flanked by the second and ninth Doctor, you, you would almost think, wow, this, this is going to be a meeting yeah, between those two Doctors. Um, yeah, I can completely understand that because it's what I was hoping for as well. Um, but yeah, I think, yeah, fascinating how accepted Season 6B has become. Because uh, in the discontinuity guide, I think, was the first place that was floated, if I'm not wrong. And then... Um, Various other media, like the Nest Cottage Chronicles, uh, I think make reference to it. Uh, the books, you know, it, it feels like it's maybe on a matter of time before there's some reference to it in the TV series because it's become such a such a widely accepted idea that, that this happened now, isn't it? Mm. Mm. And, and all because Robert Holmes forgot which Doctor did missions for the Time Lords when he wrote The Two Doctors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, oh, it was around the time I started, you know. <laughs> Well, there's the bit in the Five Doctors as well, isn't there? When um, the Second Doctor remembers uh, Zoe and Jamie having had their memories wiped, so there's that's uh, true. Yeah. I suppose there is uh, there's different different sources for it. And I, I just I just want to say because I have been able to catch snippets of Tales from the TARDIS, but I realise by the time this releases that people outside the UK may not have seen it. There's a couple of lines in those that imply yet another explanation not to series 6b but to the idea of doctors remembering things outside their time jason has taken his headset off so he can't hear me say all that so i'm going to give him a thumbs up now jason you can come back come back <laughs> that was the sound of jason who has not yet seen tales from the tardis quickly taking off his headphones and covering the earpieces so as not to be spoiled brennan yep. wave me back in physically into the room <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the social import of this novel. If you look at M.G. Harris's Twitter feed, she's very concerned about the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, She's very concerned about the invasion of Israel and the reprisals from Israel's alt-right government. She is a humanist. And if you take away the silliness and the manic tone and the constant scene changes in the book... Part four of the book is about the destruction of the ecosystem on the planet Vasta in order for the Slithean or whoever hires the Slithean 
to strip mine their ores and minerals. It is basically the same plot as the Patrick, sorry, not the Patrick Chapman. It's the same plot as the John Pertwee story, The Mutants, where the Earth Empire is doing the same thing to the planet Solos. S-O-L-O-S, Solos. I so rarely say that out loud. The point <laughs> is, this book actually has an ecological point to it at the end. Then there's this big conference on Vasta where the Slavine are working on assassinating the Vasta leaders and trying to foment civil war. And that's an interesting point about using the media to manipulate the population. But then Doom looks out the window and she sees the mountains being destroyed by these massive ore freighters. It's easy to overlook that because the book goes by so fast and is tongue-in-cheek, but there is a point to this book, and it is serious, and that's the best use of science fiction. You're using the lens of science fiction to tell a point of social importance. Twilight Zone did it, H.G. Wells did it, and now M.G. Harris is doing it. Yeah, I think that that's really interesting, the way that, that basically there's two factions on this planet. There's the, the faction who want to stop the asteroid hitting the planet and they're, they're the cads and then there's the faction who think it's just destiny and it should be the asteroid should be allowed to hit the planet and kill them all and they're called the mads which felt a little bit on the nose to call them uh, the mads because i suppose they are the you know they're the anti-vaxxers and the anti-maskers and the the people who just say well you know we shouldn't uh, you basically shouldn't do anything <laughs> so it's and and it's how they are manipulated by by the leaders by the kind of the demagogues and everything like that so it felt very very yeah timely uh, i suppose it always feels timely for something but yeah particularly uh, you know given given recent events across the world it was uh, it, it was an interesting thing to uh, to tackle but as you say very in a very very fast paced action story uh, so it, it does whip by really quickly but there's some fantastic ideas in there Mm. And you've even got the sort of um, regional leaders and leading scientists of the Vasta who are quite willing to abandon the planet when they know it's under threat and leave everyone else there. Mm. But, of course, they're not going anywhere better. <laughs> it's just get it's this thing of get them out of the way because they'll be the ones to resist us and realise we're, we're full of crap, think the Slovene. So, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll sort of get them and you know it's the the sale of political and industry leaders um to you know downplay bad sides of environmental reports etc cetera, etc cetera. and yeah i i was quite taken with that moment in that the slovene gains control of that room by just continuing to speak calmly while everyone's panicking and it's kind of like yeah you can say anything in a calm tone of voice and make it sound reasonable uh, but um, that means the person over there shouting, no, 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 there's danger. Well, how unreasonable are they? That's very unreasonable behavior. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That was a really powerful moment in the book for me. <laughs> Definitely. And, and a continuing thread from, from, from the short story, hour one that's, that starts Doomsday and from the Doctor Who magazine comics, is Doom being stalked by this Grim Reaper-type figure. Mm. It wasn't clear in the early chapters whether that was a literal monster that's chasing her or whether it was kind of a metaphor for whatever it is that's coming for her, but I think it makes it pretty clear in this book that there is an actual monster that's following her. And we have a special guest reading now from the brilliant Lucy McCall from Doom's encounter with the monster in this one. 
Before she could change her mind, in rapid succession, Doom selected both jobs. She speed-read instructions and, with a quick nod at each fee, signed the contracts. She got through the next minute by breathing deep and slow, trying to control her racing heart. The sensation of being in over her head was close to overwhelming. 54 seconds to go. She picked up her backpack and headed for the bathroom, washed her hands, and then tucked herself into a cubicle to wait. In situations like this, Doom normally held the door closed rather than locking it. After she vortexed away, a locked, empty cubicle would be a tiny anomaly. She preferred to evade small harms during time travel, at the very least to avoid being responsible for one less place for people to pee. So when she felt a yank from the other side of the door, she resisted. Both assignments would begin in less than ten seconds. The door flung suddenly open, pulled by an implacable force. She drew breath quickly, then stopped. It was there, outside the cubicle, less than a metre away. Its face, if there even was one, lurked in shadows, the outline wreathed by shredded edges of a cow. She sensed the tendrils of fabric moving in and out, as though she could see its breath. Doom's whole body went rigid with terror. No! She sensed the familiar tug of gravity as the vortex formed at her wrist. Before she disappeared, she thought she heard a low growl, like the guttural warning cry of a demon. Thank you very much to Lucy for that brilliant reading. And Doom realises in this book, or she, she intuits, I think, that this, when she meets the second Doctor, that this is the incarnation after the Doctor that she met in New Venice. So when she's on the mission in New Venice, she's about to assassinate somebody and she meets the Doctor who's described as an old man. So it's been a, a bit of a mystery for the readers up to this point because, uh, you know, that from the point of view of Doom being quite young, it could have been, uh, you know, a lot of the Doctors or, you know, it could have been sort of Peter Capaldi's Doctor or anything. So we learn now that it's the first Doctor and both the ninth Doctor and the second Doctor are very reluctant to discuss what happened and tell her they can't help her. The ninth Doctor says your timeline is collapsing, which is kind of new information for the reader. And for Doom here. Oh, right. I was wondering about that. Yeah, so we, we haven't had that before because Doom we don't know basically we don't know what happened. We know she tries to kill somebody and then she's uh she's outside in New Venice, outside of this ballroom. She's been critically wounded. Her kind of uh Vortex manipulator thing is telling her she's got twenty four hours to live. But we don't yeah, so we don't know who she's trying to kill, as I say. We don't know we don't okay. know what the weapon that was inflicted on her was. So yeah, I'm very curious to see when we get to when I get to the end because all all this stuff is out now. Why only the first Doctor can help her? I guess if he does help her, then the subsequent Doctors won't help purely because the other Doctors know that um, he's already helped her, and it would create a paradox if any, if anybody else does it. So uh, yeah, I think the thing that's keeping me really interested is finding out who she tried to kill in the first place, what the weapon is what uh you know what the kind of the what the kind of the outcome will be and and um yeah whether the doctor can in fact help her so i mean assume she doesn't die at the end but you never know <laughs> there's um there's a bit i really like at the end um where um it's one of the last things that the doctor says to doom which is vast is safe because of that, the galaxy is safer too. Today you helped. And I think it's it's a really important moment. One, because 
the second doctor could be so gentle with those quiet sort of moments and you can really picture it. But also um, with that whole thing we were talking about earlier of, you know, how do you do a series about an assassin? And the answer is you give her a moral code. Yeah. And in that moment, the doctor approves of her. And not only that, a few seconds later says um, kind of very subtly says to her, if anybody asks, I was never here. Yeah. And she's really chuffed that he would trust her like that. And, you know, you've also got the ninth doctor taking her for giving her an extra five minutes so they can go for a coffee together. Yeah. It's, it's very clear that while the doctor doesn't approve of everything doom does, he approves of doom as a person. Yeah. And, and he's sympathetic to what she's going through as well, isn't he? Yeah. Mm, 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 and they go to the original Starbucks in Seattle. Uh, considering how many gazillions of Starbucks there are in America, it's nice to go to a Starbucks that has actual meaning. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, I had a bit of a giggle at the, at the bit where she like can't stand drinking cow's milk. And it's just like, that's weird. Um, Funny, the funny thing is, I'm actually recording my part of this episode from Mexico. I'm here for the, I'm here for the gay games, and one of our one of our wrestlers is um, is vegan, and we've discovered vegan places around. But I'm I'm just like, oh, I think Andy would approve of this moment. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it does suggest that that veganism is is the standard in the future, I suppose, doesn't it? I think it's 51st century that that dooms from. Mm. Well, the other thing we haven't talked about is the, the reality TV show that Doom briefly becomes embroiled in, which is very, very Satellite 5, isn't it? It's it's cruel, it's exploitative, um, it's it's called Ghost versus Whatever, and it's uh yeah, so it's it's the people who've paid to become ghosts after their death, then having sort of uh confrontations, I suppose like Jerry Springer style confrontations with uh with people that they knew or who uh, had wronged them, or you know, in this case, this is like uh, the episode that she's in, where it's called "Ghost versus Assassin," and it's uh, it's how they're going to kill this ghost. So, uh, but it's, it's pretty grim because the ghost of a little boy, and they're going to trap it in this lift, and it'll just kind of go insane in there until its battery runs out. So it's uh, it's uh, I suppose it's a vengeance on virus style commentary on the exploitative nature of of reality TV, and and also the kind of the the uh, the sadism of the of the viewer uh, wanting to see people suffer and, uh, and things like that. And there's a little bit of how the sausage gets made because you get an up-close-and-personal look at the sadistic, evil TV producer who is putting together this true crime series. And it turns out that TV producer is a little more than meets the eye, but that's not the kind of character we normally get in a Doctor Who episode, so it was nice to kind of look behind the curtain and see mm. that. Yeah, yeah. Um, and of course, you know, it's presaging what Satellite 5 will become after the long game, you know. Uh, but at, the, at this stage, it's, except for this particular episode, which, you know, is never quite meant to, spoiler alert, is never quite meant to succeed, um, mm. how, it's, how the producer describes it. Um, this particular show, as, as, as you say, uh, Mark, it's more, it's more of a Jerry Springer thing. Like, no one's usually meant to die in it, but of course, mm. by the time we get to Bad Wolf Parting of the Ways, the games are going to be very different. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a really good point. Yeah, it's, uh, it's kind of bridging that gap, isn't it? 
Uh, speaking of people with occupations, I like how the book also is concerned with the quotidian nature of Doom's job. She's not just an assassin. She's not a mystical creature with otherworldly skills. This is a day job. She has to clock in and out. She has to sign contracts. There's talk about insurance. She has a personal assistant. This is a job for her, and all the quotidian things that happen in jobs that are annoying, all the administrative headaches and responsibilities and oversight, she's putting up with that too. That adds a nice little layer of realism to the book. Yeah, yeah. I, I, I loved all the little admonishments of Terry, the assistant. <laughs> <laughs> leaving out important information. <laughs> Ian Fleming does the same thing in the James Bond novels because James Bond goes out to lunch and he has to read reports and he's always terrified to be called into Em's office. So yeah, these these are these are day jobs and it's not just all glamour and excitement and shooting bullets. It's paperwork and overtime and disciplinary review. Mm. And it ties in like with that that bureaucracy ties in with the narrative of the story because there are there are several times where she cannot get out of danger because she hasn't completed the job or because if if she were to falsify it her vortex manipulator wouldn't work and get her out of it so it's not just world building it is essential to the plot to understand why this is happening but it never feels like an info dump. It never feels like, well, as you know, Bob, yeah, it's, yeah. it's really well done. Yeah, absolutely. Um, it's, um, it, it's, it's well set up like that. And if you read after this, you want to read some more doomsday hour one, which is the James Goss opening chapter has a lot more stuff with, with Terry, um, when Doom phones her to say that she's been sort of fatally wounded, and um, and Terry's far more concerned with the paperwork than <laughs> than anything else. It's, it's kind of really, really uh, wittily done, yeah. Uh, and, and as you were saying about the, the, the it being a job, and it's like reputational risk as well, isn't it? When 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 the little boy Alexi says, "Well, you know what happens if you don't complete the mission?" It's like, well, you know, gradually I'll stop getting hired because uh, you know, kind of people realize I'm uh, not reliable. The other thing that felt like was a big influence on on the overall story was um, how much like a computer game it is with the the monocle that Doom wears, and that kind of gives mm. her 3D schematics and maps of where wherever she is. Like she she downloads the missions, she's got like her inventory of weapons and things like that. And there's one of the stories where she's injured and she has to go and get like some kind of uh, like medical kit that heals her, which you know feels like uh, you know, kind of a first-person shooter where you have to go find things to, uh, to to heal your wounds and things. Um, even in the um, the first hour where she's um, uh, stunning um, androids, there's a mathematical component to it. She's like, right, at this level of stun, they stay down for this long. Yeah. Da, da, da. And, you know, in video games, you do have to do that kind of thing. It's like if you jump on a Koopa Trooper in Super Mario Brothers, there is a timer for when it's going to come out of its shell again. Yeah. You know, unless, unless you unless you drop it or kick it in the meantime. So even, even that is a sort of subtle gamification. Yeah, while also being a trope of um, like assassin media, like James Bond, like Callan, you know, there's uh, 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 there's often an analytical moment where they're like, okay, well, this gives me two minutes to do this and one minute to do that, and the guards patrol it every five to seven minutes, so I've got a window here, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. 
middle three four seven for trap one. How do you read me? So that's our show. Thank you very much, Jason and Brendan. Thank you very much to Lucy for the brilliant reading. Uh, Lucy's written a Halloween drama for the Who Corner to Corner podcast, which is available now. I'll put in a link in the show notes to that. We've all contributed to a new Doctor Who book, which is coming out for the 60th anniversary, and that's called Outside In Regenerates. Um, I think that's, that's available pretty soon, Jason. Is that right? Yes, uh, I believe it is coming out in November in time for the anniversary. I have put in my pre-order. I will just explain, Outside In is a long-running series put together by Stacey Smith, who has been on Trap One before. The idea is you take a TV series and you have one critical essay for every episode of that series written by a different author. So the original Outside In covered classic Doctor Who. Unearthly Child, all the way up through Survivor, 158 writers talking about 158 different classic series episodes. I wrote about The Time Warrior, but I didn't sit down with a quill pen and a pot of ink and write a new essay of The Time Warrior. Stacy took my Amazon review of Time Warrior, had me slightly edit it, and published that in the book. About half the book was pre-existing pieces. Stacy then, through ATB Publishing in the U.S., did a different outside-in volume every year, moving on to New Who, original Star Trek Next Generation, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, Angel, season one of Star Trek Picard, Twin Peaks. So outside-in does a new book every year. After 10 years of the series, Stacy decided to do outside-in regenerates. Now that the format has been perfected, she wanted to go back and redo the original Doctor Who volume, but instead of pre-existing essays, these would be all new essays from a much larger stable of writers. So none of the pieces in the original Outside In are going to be in Outside In Regenerates. It's the same stories, but covered by different writers in different fashions. So I am not writing about the Time Warrior in this book. I am, in fact, writing about the Abominable Snowmen. And If this interests you, if you like reading critical essays that are unauthorized, and especially Stacey emphasis humor, so a lot of these essays are going to be very funny and off the beaten path and written in a variety of formats, because ATB is such a small press and because the the price of paper has gone up during the pandemic, it is important to pre-order this. Pre-orders are a very important part in the life of any small press, so please pre-order the book. Mark will put a link in the show notes. My pre-order is already in, even though I am getting a contributor's PDF copy. I'm paying for a physical copy of the book. And if you like that sort of thing, please do the same. And Brendan, which story have you covered? Uh, yes, I'm also in Outside of Regenerates, and I have covered The Power of Kroll. Fantastic. Ooh. And uh, <laughs> I've done Silver Nemesis. I was very, very lucky to beat the crowd on that one. Uh, so... Uh, very pleased to, uh, to to cover such a, a brilliant story. I know that um, Fraser Gregory, who's a regular voice in Trap One, has also written um, an entry, and uh, I suspect there'll probably be some other very familiar names in there as well. Where else can we find you, gentlemen, online? You can find me in the uh, Flat Through Entirety family of podcasts. So that now includes Flat Through Entirety, Maximum Power, um, and a new podcast we started called Startling Barbara Bain, uh, where we are going through all of Space 1999 in order and um, seeing if we ever spot Barbara Bain being startled or expressing strong emotion. Uh, 
And I also have two gaming projects. Uh, there is a podcast called the BJBJ Game Show, where I host that with my friend BJ. Our next episode is on the Stanley Parable. Uh, and I have a gaming YouTube channel called Retro Brendo. So you can find me in all those places. Uh, we should say Series C of Maximum Power has just started. So I think yes. uh, at the time that this will be released, Power Play will be coming out tomorrow. Yep. So uh, so do check that out if you're a Blake 7 fan. I will also say if anyone listens to any of the podcasts I do and wants to ask me a question, uh, just provide context because I tend to forget what I've actually said um, shortly after I finish recording. And it doesn't mean that I don't hold that opinion anymore. It just means that I hold so many opinions that I've, I don't I don't know I don't know what I've talked about. <laughs> yeah, we recorded Maximum Power quite a few months ago, didn't we? So uh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm listening to them as they come out, and I can't really remember what what I said. <laughs> and Jason, I am a complete slacker compared to Brendan. What I put out into the podcast universe scarcely bears discussing. In that context, I have one podcast. Doctor sure. Who Literature, I am not on YouTube. Doctor Who Literature is currently in the middle of the 1985 Target novelizations. Uh, the last episode that I recorded book-wise was The Mind of Evil with Jim Sangster, and the last episode I recorded before that was The Awakening with Andrew Smith, the author of Full Circle, tackling a story that was not his own. It was a lot of fun. It is November 2023. It is the 60th anniversary month, so I will be putting the books part of Doctor Who Literature on hiatus, and for the next month I'll be discussing various aspects of the 60th anniversary, including my long-awaited list of the top 60 stories of all time, counted down, and some familiar voices from Trap One may very well be a part of that project. I am also on all the socials at Doctor Who Novels, DR Who Novels, I am in the process of taking my business away from Musk and Yakarino, and I'm making Blue Sky my primary uh, social media contact. That process is incomplete and will take till the end of the year, but I am going to be saying goodbye to uh, the white supremacists, and I'll be saying hello to Blue Sky, which is an attempt to be what Twitter used to be, minus the baggage. I'm also on Twitter, and Blue Sky is at QuarkMcMallis. Thank you very much for listening to this episode. You can find all our previous episodes at trap1.podbean.com. Don't forget to subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Imagine that. That really would be doomsday. Thanks for listening. (laughs) Goodbye. Have a great night. Good night.